Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Retro Wrestling Podcast. I'm intern Alex, joined as always by... The one and only, the greatest referee in professional wrestling history, Patrick Young. And Patrick, it's been a while since we've been together. Happy Memorial Day in this 2020 that has uh, turned out to be quite weird. It's very, very weird. Just a, a whole different kind of scenario here. And uh, I, I am not with you. I am here at my home, and you are there at your home, and we're trying this uh, long-distance thing once again. I see how long-distance relationships work out. It's very, very, very difficult. Yeah, I'm not even worried about getting the virus from you. I'm just trying to stay away from you in general. So Exactly. Uh, uh, I'm hoping one day maybe you'll be in Japan, and uh, I'll be here, and we could do the show that way. North Pole, South Pole, you know. Maybe on Mars, if we ever get to Mars, uh, one of us could be there. I mean, I'll go to the moon. We can try it from there. Yeah, but you do sound slightly better than on the telephone, which is what we did for our last episode together. And in addition to this episode, I've got another episode coming out, uh, an extra episode about the time that Karma announced her pregnancy on Raw since Becky Lynch did it uh, a couple weeks ago. I wanted to revisit the other time that uh, I can remember it happening and uh, the different ways in which they were handled. Uh, WWE handling pregnancy very differently in 2020 as opposed to 2011 when uh, Karma or Awesome Kong uh, announced her pregnancy. So uh, a little bonus episode that'll be out around the same time as this one, hopefully. If I'm not lazy, uh, they'll still be out eventually. And it also happened on Memorial Day, too, when Karma made that announcement. So with all... It, it's crazy. Wrestling just it always it always comes around. Everything it all ties in. Yeah, everything, everything ties in. Unfortunately, we have to start with some bad news this week as two wrestlers passed away. One an active wrestler and one a retired wrestler. And we'll start with Shad Gaspard, who was a member of Crime Time in the WWE along with JTG. He had been retired for a few years and had gotten into acting. Um, occasionally appeared on the independent circuit like he was at one of the Joey Janela spring breaks in the clusterfuck battle royal and uh, would make appearances from time to time um, but just kind of I think he was doing some personal training and stuff this dude was was jacked man he was he's doing movies he was uh, he was being like a stuntman for movies I heard at one point in time Uh, he just yeah personal trainer bodybuilder he was he had his hand in pretty much anything you could do after yeah. wrestling. And he had a pretty decent run in Japan as well that a lot of people don't realize. Yeah, in 2011 he had a, a little run in Japan, but he stood, uh, well his build height was 6'7", and his build weight was 285, and he looked every bit of it. Uh, yeah. A very, a very big oh. specimen in the world of pro wrestling, and came up through OVW, was trained by the Rock's dad, Rocky Johnson, along with uh, Al Snow and uh, Dwayne Bruce, and ended up getting called to the main roster in 2006. You know, tag team wrestling in the WWE has not been a priority in many, 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 many years. And unfortunately, crime time is, is part of that, where it's just kind of, you're just kind of there. They had the breakup angle, and then he had a singles run, and he last appeared on WWE TV in 2010, and then uh, went to Japan 
and then has been doing all that work we mentioned earlier ever since then. So on May 17th, 2020, his uh, wife and his son were with him, and they were out at Venice Beach, which had just reopened to the public. They were just having a day out on the beach, and uh, they were out swimming in the ocean, which I've never been in the Pacific Ocean. It's always it's a goal of mine. I will eventually get there. Um, I love big waves, and I love... Uh, the beach, but I've never been to the Pacific Ocean, but they were at Venice Beach, and uh, suddenly a rip current comes out of nowhere, as they often do, and starts pulling the swimmers apart, and the lifeguards come out to save everybody, and it's Shad and his son are out there. His wife was apparently on the beach still. Uh, The lifeguard is trying to save both of them, and he says, save my son, save my son, and um, then a wave came up, and crashed down on Shad, and unfortunately, that was that was it. And two days later, his uh, body washed up on the shoreline. So a really awful, awful way to go. And uh, but a very heroic thing to do to tell the lifeguards to save the son and sacrifice yeah. yourself, basically. He basically, yeah, he basically just grabbed his son and chucked him chucked his son at the lifeguards and was like save him save him and uh but you know you talk about heroic just a couple of years ago shad broke up a robbery an armed robbery at a gas station so we covered that in one of our podcasts where he had done that and sort of ironic that the guy from the tag team crime time was actually stopping crime when he got out into the real world and and then last year during wrestlemania at wrestlemania 35 when kofi kingston won the belt there was that video circulating of uh mvp and shad watching and basically like crying it was so emotional for them to see a black guy win the world title basically so very sad he seemed like a nice guy i haven't read anything negative about him it wasn't like he was some troubled troubled guy i mean he was wasn't even 40 years old and that's uh really really sad so yeah um just awful awful and if that wasn't bad enough then we lost another wrestler, uh, Hana Kimura, who was a female wrestler in Japan and was also a member of the Netflix TV show Terrace House, which is like a Big Brother type show. And uh, apparently she was only 22 years old and uh, it's pretty early, but it appears that she um, took her own life, which is very, very bad. And um, apparently uh, it's being blamed on abuse from social media and i i just don't know enough about her or japanese wrestling or especially female japanese wrestling because remember new japan does still to this day does not have female wrestlers so you have to go to the other companies to see women wrestlers and uh so i just i don't know enough about it and as far as terrace house goes i started it on netflix and i i just couldn't get into it but it is sad because it has to if it does have to do with social media bullying it's something that it's something that i'll never be able to relate to because even though she was only you know she's only 10 years younger than me but and and we grew up in the same we grew up in social media we grew up with high-speed internet and this global conversation that we're having but at the same time i've never i've never really been bullied uh, on social media and if i have like if someone if some troll tries to mess with me even if 
they tried to mess with it. if they wrote a negative comment on our podcast or something i'd just ignore it and that's always the way that i've been and i, I remember yeah. my little sister dealt with uh online bullying when she was in high school and i told her i said just just ignore it i mean you don't have to read it you know you can just go on about your business but people are so connected that it just it affects them and i'm not victim blaming here i just think you need to disconnect from from it and and not and just remember it's a cesspool it's it's just a lot of there's some good things on the internet and there's a lot of bad so i mean uh if it does in fact which there's a really good chance turn out to be cyberbullying i believe when 100% that that person whoever did it is uh, is and should be charged with murder because it led to the acts. And cyberbullying is, is one of those weird things. Certain states are taking it up to actual being able to file charges and being able to uh, make it go to trial to some degree on situations like this. And then there's other states that are saying that it's, I had, you know, I had a right to run my own mouth and my freedom of speech. And however, that person handles it, that's their problem, not mine. And it's just a very, it's a touchy subject that's going around right now with um, with everyone. Um, but my opinion is that if you bully somebody and you hurt them to the point that they end up hurting themselves, then, uh, then yeah, you should be held accountable because, you know, it, it, especially if you knew that that was what was going to happen and you still kept going. And I don't know the whole story. I don't know a lot of details. Um, I've heard all different kinds of hearsay stuff but nothing legit and so uh I, I i don't know it's just it's very sad it's very sad and uh as for shad i never knew him personally i we had mutual friends i never said a word to him uh reached out to jtg on twitter and gave my condolences to him and uh and told him to hopefully pass it along there is however a uh a gofundme page out there for shad's son and his wife i highly yeah the last time i looked it already had over one hundred thousand dollars in it yeah so definitely a lot of love for for shad and that gofundme page but at the same time this this it always comes back to some of the same central things that I talk about in a lot of our episodes, and that is, like, benefits for wrestlers after they're out of the game or whatever. It's like, it's kind of sad that Shad and his wife have to go to GoFundMe. Why wouldn't the WWE, a billion-dollar company, have something for them? Now, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I mean, maybe they contributed to the GoFundMe. I, I'm not sure, but at the same time, I just think there should be benefits for these independent contractors who are really employees, even though they're not. But And getting back to Kimura for a second, uh, she was also a second-generation wrestler. Her mom was a wrestler, uh, so that's more of a tragedy. And and when it goes back to cyberbullying for, for one more second, I, I just think that it also falls on social media companies like Twitter and Instagram, um, especially Twitter. That's the one I'm most familiar with as far as... Um, that's the one I use the most, probably. I, I rarely post on Facebook. I never post on Instagram because I hate pictures. But when I'm on Twitter, and there's a reporting mechanism, and you can say, oh, this is abuse or this is whatever, and they rarely act on it. And I know it's, uh, it's freedom of speech and this and that. 
you see what harm is being done, and not just to yeah. people that end up taking their own lives, but just to the the psyche of the public in general. And I, I yeah. just think there should be a, a better way of monitoring it. And Twitter, uh, this past week, uh, coincidentally, they've done this new thing to where now you can choose who replies to your tweets. So you can now it can be a one-way communication. So I think that's going to help out a lot of people as far as not having trolls or bots reply to you and, and spam you. So that's a good thing. But I think the blood is sort of on social media companies' hands as well for allowing their platforms to be turned into platforms of hate. So just a very a very sad thing. Yeah, it's it's just sad all the way around. And, uh, yeah, my, my thoughts and prayers go out to both of their families and friends. Um, like I said, it's it's a horrible thing. Uh, I, I just... A, a, a damn good man was taken from this earth too soon. And a 22-year-old athlete with a bright future was pushed too far. That's the only way to put it. And it's it's sad. I think AEW said it right last night when they announced Hana Kimura, her passing, that, you know, maybe... Excalibur, he was like, you know, let's let's just try to be a little bit more nicer to each other. And that's right. You know, I agree 1,000%. You know, the world's going through so much shit right now. And uh, instead of, you know, you're fighting back a, a, a disease that has uh, touched pretty much every human being or a friend of every human being on this planet right now, and so you got that stress and that build up, not to mention the fact that even kids at schools, <laughs> I mean, there's no school. Kids are talking about next year when they go back, they're going to have to start wearing masks. For I mean, it, it's it's the world as we know it is in, in turmoil right now, and it's trying to find its common bearing. In the process of trying to gather together into battling that, you would rather start poking fun of or picking a fight with someone online and and that just I, it, I don't know it doesn't make a lot of sense it's not right and if it does turn out to be cyberbullying whoever was responsible needs to be actually held responsible and that's my stance on it moving forward uh, we haven't really discussed it because it's been an odd situation we haven't been able to record that much uh, dark side of the ring Dark Side of the Ring. Have you watched any of it, Alex? Yeah, I've seen all of season two, so I'm I'm all caught up. I have too. I have any specific episode that stood out to you? Well, this season started out with the Chris Benoit story. It was a two-parter. Then they went to the life and crimes of New Jack. Then they covered the Brawl for All. Then they covered Jimmy Snuka. Then they covered Dino Bravo. Then they covered David Schultz and slapping John Stossel. Then they covered uh, Cocaine and Cowboy Boots, the Herb Abram story. And then we had the last ride of the Road Warriors. And finally, the season finale was the final days of Owen Hart. Out of this season, I would probably say, obviously, the season finale and it might just be recency bias because it was the last one i saw but also i enjoyed it the most and that was owen hart's episode because martha hart has written a book about it broken hearts i think is what it's called she's not really ever been given this platform before to reach this wide of an audience to talk about 
uh, Owen Hart and her feelings towards the World Wrestling Federation, now World Wrestling Entertainment. And it was the episode that I enjoyed the most. The episode I enjoyed the least was probably the Herb Abrams one because, and this isn't to dismiss the the story, but a wrestling promoter that does a lot of cocaine and dies, um, that's a lot of wrestling promoters. And I just didn't find it very interesting. I also really didn't like the Road Warriors one that much. And that's just because sort of the same reason I wasn't real high on the Von Erichs episode from season one. And I, I think that's been, I think it's been covered already by the WWE and even better really in the Road Warriors documentary that the wwe produced uh yeah i'd say the owen episode was definitely my favorite i also enjoyed the dino bravo episode the david schultz one just to see how crazy david schultz is today uh was was pretty good yes i i love the owen i uh dino bravo i love new jack uh david schultz is one of the best that i think they've ever done because it shows, number one, how crazy he is, which <laughs> is awesome, because... He's nuts! Have, he He's absolutely out of his mind. I have always admired Dr. D for the fact that he stayed in character 24-7. Now I realize that that was the character, that's just him. And so, it, uh, it was great, and I enjoyed... Every bit of it. I've never met the man. I would love, absolutely love to meet David Schultz. That would be uh, something, that would be a highlight for me, to sit down and pick his brain and have a conversation with him, uh, talking about, you know, some of the good old days and what all went on. So, uh, but I also enjoyed, uh, like I said, New Jack. I uh, the brawl for all was really well. The Crispin Law, I think, was um, it was done from a different angle that most people haven't seen with uh, having his son and Nancy's sister give their side of the whole thing. I think that that was done very well. Uh, something that was something that you number one you'll never see anywhere else because it won't be covered. But number two, for the fact that everybody... Is no, I think it's been covered too much. That, that's why I would dismiss it as not that great really? of an episode, is because of these stories, even though I really like the Owen Hart one, and that was another huge you know, mainstream story in pro wrestling, the Benoit one, very, very public. You know, it's not like... It's not something that you can really dive deeper into than I think has already been done. So that's that's the only reason I wasn't that into the Chris Benoit one. Because I, I don't think we learned anything really new from it. The part at the end when, when his son reu- well reunites, when when he when Jericho facilitates him hanging out with Nancy's sister, I thought that was kind of forced. I I just I didn't get much out of the Benoit one, but I can see why. I mean, it was the second highest rated episode of of the season, so I, I can see why why you would enjoy it. It was extremely entertaining. What is what was the highest rated episode? I'm assuming Owen. Owen did a point three four nine, and Benoit did a point three two zero. So, and I'm assuming New Jack and Schultz were running neck and neck for third. Uh, the third highest one was actually the last ride of the Road Warriors. Really? And now, I'm, I'm shocked by that. 
Uh, I'm not that shocked by it because the popularity of the Road Warriors is going to always draw. I mean, they're a draw even now, even when Hawk has been dead for 15, uh, like 17 years, Hawk has been gone. I didn't like the New Jack episode. I thought. You don't like New Jack, period, though. No, so. no, he's a scumbag. And I think he furthered my case in the show when before every terrible thing he's like yeah I, I did a bunch of drugs or I, I did some PCP before I did that or but in true Carney fashion I mean that the very last story he told where he was that guy in Florida and he was like yeah well if you drop your charges we can do that that work together or whatever and the guy does it and then he skips town I mean that is just a perfect finale for that New Jack episode. The Brawl for All episode turned into a big pissing match between um, Jim Cornette, Jim Ross, and Vince Russo, basically. I didn't... Jim Ross is still sour that Dr. Death Steve Williams didn't win that tournament. I, I Very tell. much so. Very much so. And I just don't get... I, I watched the... After Dark. Did you have? Did you watch any of that? No, I no, I skipped all those. You skipped those. Okay, they were they were really good. Surprisingly, they were really good. Uh, I wish they were an hour long instead of thirty minutes because they couldn't squeeze everybody into it. But they were they were very well done. Anyway, uh, Vince Russo and Jim Cornette would rather stab their eyes out then to look at each other. Yeah, the the very first image of Cornette in that episode is him tearing Vince Russo's picture in half. Yes. I mean, Cornette yes. is in, I think, every episode this season, but in that one, that was all it was about, was just shitting on Vince Russo. And, and the one thing Cornette said uh, about the brawl for all when, when Bart Gunn knocked Dr. Death out was like, you just cost us $5 million. I wanted to say Jim. Jim. More and more I find myself disagreeing with Jim Cornette as time goes on about different things. But Dr. Death, Steve Williams, in 1998-1999, whenever they planned to do that Austin feud, would not have drawn any... He was not going to be a star in that company. I, I hate to say it. He looked like he was from a different era, and he was. And Jim Cornette yelling at Vince Russo, if this really happened, because this is... Who knows? But to say, oh, you cost us $5 million, um, no, no. Uh, Vince Russo cost you a huge mistake if they were planning to actually push Dr. Death as a top guy. I think not a long-term run, but I think he could have pulled off something. I mean, think back to Vader. Vader was a big deal with Sean for the main event role for a good, what, four or five months, something like that. And then Vader went to mid-card and was never heard of again. Now, yes, that's because he pissed off Shawn Michaels, but at the same time, it was still a big guy, and he had the mass, and it was like, ooh, new guy. Yeah, but Vader He's looks new. cool. I mean, <laughs> Dr. Death does not look cool. Dr. Oh. Death looks like your drunk uncle that stumbled out of a party and just loves to talk to you about football. You know, Bart Gunn has... <laughs> Bart Gunn has every right to be upset about how that whole thing played out for him. but He got screwed. Oh, absolutely, he, he 100%. He got 1,000% screwed over the fact 
that it didn't go was, according to plan. Well, if right. it didn't go, why didn't you plan it out then? Why didn't you just script it? Yes, <laughs> that's what's exactly. stupid about this whole thing. Is like, okay, we're gonna have shoot fights, but we want it to go a certain way. Okay, well then it's not a shoot fight anymore. Okay, so it's a shoot fight and the guy gets knocked out. Well, what did you expect? What was your opinion on Bart Gun t- <laughs> taking, <laughs> not taking the blame, but pushing it off on them for what happened with him and Butterbean at WrestleMania? No, that he's absolutely right. I mean, it was punishment. It, it was Jim Ross and Cornette and whoever else was involved in creative saying, let's fuck this guy over and put him in the ring with a professional fighter. And I think what solidified that for me was when Jim Ross said, nobody in the Brawl for All got over. And I wanted to say, I I was screaming at the TV, basically. Well, in my head, anyway. The guy knocked three people out. He knocked out a future world champion in JBL. And so how did he not get over? He didn't get over because you didn't push him. You didn't do anything with him. And when you brought him back, you brought him back to face... A fucking 400-pound professional fighter that knocked him the fuck out. Yeah, so... Um, well, what cracked me up was... what I Not what I was getting at, but what cracked me up was him sidestepping and blaming the company for them sending him to a boxing camp in the build-up to WrestleMania 15 as to why he got his ass kicked. Because he should have just went in there and been doing what he was doing all along and that was just bare knuckles going at it and not tried to box with him so much. And the fact that Butterbean admitted that, too. Butterbean said he didn't stand a chance, but he at least would have lasted longer had he come out the way he had been all through the brawl for all and not try to actually rope it up and box with me because that's what got his ass kicked in. Yeah, he tried to learn style. He tried to learn form. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, what, 14 seconds or something? I think it was a little bit longer, but there was no way he was going to beat Butterbean, even if he went in there. Yeah, Butterbean said he he stood a slightly better chance. He's still getting knocked out. There's no yeah, way no out way. of it. No, no. No way out of it. They just, to me, they just missed an opportunity with Bart Gunn, because you have a legit badass and he had just proven that too that was the bad part about it now i think bart gun could have went toe to toe with austin and that would have been, that would have drawn because you have a brawler like stone cold and you have now an obvious brawler like bart gun they could have gotten three pay-per-views out of it yeah and you give bart a mouthpiece if you think he can't talk so just give someone to speak for him and that's it. Yeah, yeah. And he would have been fine. He would have been what Ken Shamrock, you know, on paper, that's what Ken Shamrock should have been. But they, they, I mean, he could have been Brock, modern day Brock Lesnar, you know, this legit cage fighter, basically. So yeah. I just think they really blew it. And so I, I feel bad for, for Bart Gunn in, in that situation. And he has aged uh, terribly, not as terribly as Barry Darso. Out of everybody on uh, Dark Side of the Ring this season, Barry Darso showing up in the Road Warriors when I was like, "Who the fuck is that guy?" And then they supered him, and I was like, "No way!" Like he he just looks like any guy you'd see at the grocery store. Poor Barry Darso. <laughs> but um, I, I enjoy 
every episode all season. I enjoyed last season. Uh, I think Jericho did a great job narrating this year, this year's or this season's. I kind of miss the old narrator. I, I don't know Ooh. why. Uh, that it's just a preference on voice, I guess. It, it really has nothing to do with because they would say the same things. I think what kind of bothered me about Jericho being the voiceover guy is that in some episodes he was also an interview. So it's kind of weird that right he's the right. narrator and he's a guy that talks about it. So. But yeah, it's still a very good series, and unfortunately, many, many more tragedies in wrestling to go, so they'll never run out of content. Dino Bravo was the most shocking one for me, because they got to what I feel was the closest to the truth anyone will ever know. And that has been something that has been so kept quiet and so hush-hush and nobody really knew the whole story so I felt like that was that one was done very well also yeah his his and Owen's were were very touching to me because they had the families there they had kids that are basically our age uh, in, in 2020 and they're talking about it and like Dino Bravo's daughter was so little when he died or whatever but I definitely never heard Dino Bravo's family speak I mean the hearts outside of Martha have been very vocal about everything I mean they are probably the most vocal wrestling family in the world but I'd never heard anything from Dino Bravo's family so seeing and like the the recreation of her walking up to Dino Bravo's like casket and stuff it's just that was awful. So, um. I was also shocked at the fact that it came out that some of the hearts were working against Martha in the lawsuit to help Vince. That, to me, was one of the sh- most shocking things I have ever heard. Well, that. That's her allegation, and right. Um, well, Brett's admitted to asking her about trying to get his tape library back from Vince or whatever. He wanted the rights to his Stampede tapes, I think, and he eventually got them when he did that DVD uh, when he came back. Before he came back in 2010, when he actually when he did that DVD with Vince, and so he ended up getting those matches that he wanted back back as far as the rest of the hearts i can i can see it because i can believe martha's allegation that they would think that way because Stu was a promoter and so if you are the family of a promoter you sympathize with the promoter that's why they would sympathize with another promoter and not wanting to stir the pot of suing the promoter for something that happened in the ring. Right. I think that's that's the only way I could explain it. And also, to not burn the bridges for uh, Davy Boy Smith, uh, who eventually who did go back to the company, and for the Anvil. Because you also have... I mean, they went to WCW initially after the screw job, but to burn that bridge. And it's not just Owen's family that relies on wrestling for income. It, it's all... It's... it's 
the entire Hart family is it relies on wrestling for income. And do yeah. you really want to piss off the guy that basically owns wrestling? I, I mean, I, I don't know how else to put it. That's the only that's the only way I can see that making sense to me that they would say no, no, don't you know, don't go in, you know, claws out on Vince. But I would believe those are the reasons why. But I'm glad about the Owen episode, though, that Martha explains, I don't want the company that I think killed him to honor him. And seeing that clip that he was attached to in her hand, it's like, seriously? Like, that was the only thing holding him up? Something for sailboats? Because I I had never actually seen the clip. Like, um, that's insanity. Because we've talked about it before, I mean, when Sting would descend from the rafters, yeah, he he. It would take him a minute to unhook everything because he's got multiple things. He's got a vest on. He, you know, he couldn't just come out swinging at the NWO, but it was fine. It didn't bother anybody. And for them to bring in this inexperienced stunt guy, and then it was said we really need him to, you know, quick release. And they said, okay, well, we'll just get this thing used for sailboats. Here you go. I mean that's just nuts to me. So yeah, yeah, I couldn't understand that one. That was shocking to me as well. It has me thinking that she's still and somewhat not fully letting go with the lawsuit because she still has the evidence and things. So I know that there was you know some terms to the lawsuit finally came out and, and all this and. Well, she had taken them to court a few years ago when they did the Owen DVD and they did the the Hart Family DVD and not giving her royalties for those. So it still comes up from time to time. So Right. So, I mean, and she, I was shocked that she still has every bit of evidence and all that still filed away. So it's it's almost like, you know, listen, I'm, I'm not going down without a fight type deal. And uh, kudos to her for that, by the way. Well, and yeah, and just like I said last year, like, I'm sorry, but last year at the Hall of Fame when Mark Henry was using that platform to, like, beg Martha to let Owen in the Hall of Fame, like, I'm sorry, he just has no place to say that. Like, it's not up to him at all. Like, I know that his children in this documentary were both like, nah, nah, we're not ever going to do that. Like, but if they... if it's up to them. Anybody that's screaming at, at Martha or the kids to, to let Owen be put into this non-existent Hall of Fame. I mean, it's a Hall of Fame on paper. It doesn't actually exist anywhere. To not only that, but to market. I'm sure they would want t-shirts and they would want an action figure and all this stuff. It's like, that's up to them. Like, just leave them alone. If the WWE was really interested in, in making amends with them, they would probably have done outreach with the Owen Hart Foundation instead of starting their own foundations like Connor's Cure and stuff like that. So yes, there's no interest from them either. So Vince holds a grudge. And so I, as much as people like to speculate, oh, it's Martha holding this whole thing up, I think it's also... I could see Vince saying, well, that that lady sued me and got and got millions of dollars out of me. He doesn't like the situation because it puts him in an extremely bad light. And I think that that's kind of got a little bit of a... Yeah, it, it's nuts. It, 
it kind of got glossed over in in the episode, but the fact that the event continued, <laughs> and the fact that the police didn't shut it down, yeah, it's it's awful. In no other sport, in no other thing ever, would someone die and they just say, okay, next play. If Tom Brady got his head ripped off, they wouldn't just say, okay, send in the backup quarterback, keep going. <laughs> but that's what they did, so... Just wild. Just probably some of the worst... I mean, there's a million things we could sit here and say are some of the worst things WWE, WWF has ever done, but that, that's that got to be way up there. Yeah. Kevin Dunn. Kevin Dunn and JR's ear. Yeah, just tell them he's dead. Three, two, one. We're live, pal. I can't imagine. Yeah, and you know, we hold Kevin Dunn at a, at a pretty high esteem as well, but that's... That one did shock me as well on the aspect that that kind of that's not something I would have expected from him. I guess is a good way to put it. And so the way they handled Brian Pillman's death a couple of years before that was very similar. I mean, he didn't die during the show, but they've never handled a. I'll say this: it took them a while to learn how to handle a wrestler death well. Yes. I don't even know to this day if they've got it down pat. So, Dark Side of the Ring, uh, great season, very enjoyable, and I hope it continues. I think it already has been renewed, so nothing to worry about there. I think it's Vice's highest rated series, so. That would be great. If it is able to still continue like that, that would be absolutely great. Uh, Moving on, uh, so we missed a couple of pay-per-views from Florida, as Florida... One of the states where you can do some sporting events. Uh, thanks in part to Vince McMahon, as we talked about in our last episode, and a contribution that Linda McMahon's Super PAC made to the appropriate people. Wrestling is deemed essential, so it can go on in Florida, and that allowed Money in the Bank 2020 to happen. I would definitely probably give this show a thumbs down. Uh, it just, it, it didn't do it for me. I mean, there were some moments that I enjoyed, but overall, I was not impressed with Money in the Bank 2020. What are your thoughts overall on Money in the Bank? It was, uh, I only tuned in to watch the Money in the Bank match, and as well as the Undertaker WrestleMania video went, and even the Bray Wyatt and John Cena video went, I do think that they kind of dropped the ball on this one. Now, while it was hilarious at points with Brother Love being in the bathroom and with them storming into Vince's office and all that kind of shit, it was... It had its down moments. I really thought that it showcased Dana Brooks... Uh, in a bad light, which is sad because, God, she has battled back, and I consider her to the fact that she could be a, a top female spot if they would just leave her the hell alone and let her do her thing. And this match right here took her right back down to the joke that she was when she was walking out with Charlotte. And uh, it's it's sad. Uh, but I enjoyed it to a degree. Uh, none. It, it was. 
it was a fail in my book. However, I would love to go back and see it, see them try it again in a much more realistic format. Yeah, I thought it was a little ambitious trying to have the women's and men's Money in the Bank going on at the same time. So this concept this year, if you didn't see it, it was done at Titan Towers. The briefcases were at the top of the building, and so the men and the women both had to brawl through the building to get to the top of the building, climb the corporate ladder, so to speak, as they kept telling us over and over again, and then reach the, the, the roof and then climb. There's a wrestling ring where wrestling would happen. Uh, and then there was ladders and the traditional money in the bank setup was on the roof. Um, I thought it was a little ambitious to have the matches put together uh, into one because they were happening at the same time, which is definitely something that has never happened before in addition i mean the whole thing was was the first of its kind but what's kind of disappointing is that it was taped like two or three weeks in advance and that was the best editing they could do that was the best kind of setups they could do it was done at their office building i mean they have complete control here it's not like they were up against any sort of limits as to what they could do and the cameos i did enjoy them that they were just people that were on hand like johnny ace he just he was there so it's like brother love he was there stephanie and vince the random production assistant that played doink for a second was really random that was actually like those random parts they they were good but the the actual fight i think there's a line are you going to do comedy or are you going to do a match? And they went the whole comedy route, and that that's fine, but I don't think it was comedy aimed at people our age. I think if you were a kid, you might enjoy it more. Like, when they do food fights, that does nothing for me. When they... So, because it, we talk about it all the time, but there's like two kinds of hardcore specialty matches. There's plunder brawls that are just I hit you with something you hit me with something but it's goof like a WCW hardcore match or there's like a a blood feud culminating in a hardcore match like a Triple H and Cactus Jack kind of legit I'm going to beat you to death with this barbed wire bat and they went the comedy route here and I don't think the whole thing needed to be 30 minutes but the pay-per-view itself was only like two and a half hours so, for the runtime of the pay-per-view, I'll give them a thumbs up. But I thought that the Money in the Bank matches went on a little too long um, for the gags that were there. The winners of the match, like Asuka, well, we didn't know. I mean, it wasn't privy to the audience watching that she's actually just going to be the champion because Becky's going to have this announcement the next night. Maybe knowing that in advance, like maybe not revealing because you would lose the Becky announcement. Yeah. Uh, but you could you could just say, well, Becky has to vacate it, find out on Monday why. Maybe that would have heightened my interest in it a little bit more, knowing that their match was for the title. Um, but then, to give Otis the men's briefcase, I mean, I feel very bad for Tucker. Uh, he's being genetted uh, very hard right now. Uh, but uh, Otis 
is going to fail at cashing in. I mean, there's no... Maybe they go that route. I mean, Jinder Mahal has been WWE champion before, so I'm not saying it's completely out of the realm of possibility, but... I would love to see Otis. I am the complete reverse of you. I would love to see Otis be the WWE champion. I think that that would be brilliant, strictly because of the fact that... I have no interest in Otis as... A wrestler. I just I don't get into it. Like I, I see his. I I can understand his appeal, but it's just not something that I'm interested in. And I've been that way from day one with heavy machinery in general. I just don't. I don't get it. But I mean, I'm not a big fan of theirs as a tag team. And I'm, but I'm growing. And so is Otis. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of of comedy wrestlers. I've talked about this many times. So it takes a very specific comedy wrestler to to get my attention and Otis just isn't it. But uh so I would I would give Money in the Bank 2020 a thumbs down and now the scary thing is that their next pay-per-view backlash isn't until like late June. So they have a long way to go and the ratings for Raw have been historically bad uh, they, they've all, they already had trouble with long term storytelling and now they have a long way to go to get to the next pay-per-view that's very scary as far as trying to keep up with it and watch it it's going to get to be very difficult to watch so then we move on to this weekend that we're recording Memorial Day weekend where All Elite Wrestling presented Double or Nothing Originally supposed to be in Las Vegas, moved to, of course, Florida. And Daly's Place, which is next door to the TIAA Bank Field. <laughs> TIA Bank. I don't know. The Jacksonville Jaguars play next door. Tony Khan's house, basically, is where this pay per view was taking place. And one thing that AEW has done throughout this entire new normal, as they call it, is having production staff and other wrestlers at ringside which at least gives you some crowd noise which i can't tell you how much of a difference that made for me watching this show like it was night and day compared to the silence of a wwe show absolutely so i'm a big fan of that even though i think the entire look i am not a (laughs) i'm not saying i approve of either company running shows during this time i think that you could still produce Especially WWE's case. They could just run those Undertaker, The Last Ride documentaries Mondays and Fridays, and I think they'd be fine. So they don't. you don't have to do wrestling here. So I'm not, I'm not saying that I approve. I think, and look, it, it, it freaks me out to see Tony and JR and Excalibur all sitting next to each other. Especially JR, you know, somebody with a pre-existing condition. <laughs> um not social distancing or whatever. I will say, since they're going to run the show, I mean, they're going to run the show regardless of how I feel. I will say, though, having the people in the crowd and having the announcers there and together, just it, it made it made a world of difference to me. I, I, I don't know what it is. Like, I, wrestling needs... Wrestling needs crowds. I, I just... I think it needs crowds. 1,000% agree. So, where do you think that... AEW's pay-per-views kind of rated last night. Do you think it was high, low, here, there? Well, considering the circumstances, I'm going to have to give it a thumbs up because 
I thought that the matches were good. I don't think any of them were great. Um, they also had a cinematic match as their main event, much like Money in the Bank, one that they taped a night earlier on a football field instead of a corporate building. And it also ran... However, this one, this one was successful in my book. This one, again... I, I had difficulty with the length of this one, especially because it ran 34 minutes, and by the time this thing was over, it was almost midnight, <laughs> and AEW had been pretty much getting out on time. Um, I guess given the circumstances, they they said, fuck it, who cares? We can go on forever if we want to. I felt just like the Money in the Bank match, a lot could have been cut out of this football field match between the inner circle and the elite plus broken Matt Hardy. There were spots that I enjoyed. I think I enjoyed this better than the Money in the Bank match. I mean, easily I enjoyed this better. There were parts of it where I just thought it dragged, and when wrestlers would just disappear for basically no reason. Like a guy, like Jake Hager, gets in a fight in the bar with Kenny Omega and Hangman Page, and then he just disappears. <laughs> so, I, I, I don't know, I... And then the the young buck doing the the suplexes all the way down the field where it was, I I don't know some of that <laughs> didn't really click with me. I did enjoy the pool spot with the Lake of Rejuvenation and Matt Hardy going back to V one for a second. We went to Team Extreme to then V one then back to uh, Broken. Broken all all in one fell swoop. I mean that match had to go on last though. I. I understand why they put it above the world title match because it was insane. So you can't follow. I mean, you have cheerleaders and you have pools and you have uh, hangman page on a horse. And then the, the riding the horse to the bar, you had Chris Jericho putting a cone on his head. Glad that they decided to end with that match, but Overall, I thought the night had some pretty pretty good matches. Like I said, I don't think they were great matches, but having the crowd, in quotation marks, help, and also, it was just better wrestling. I mean, it was just better wrestling, and that's really all it comes down to, better wrestling. I mean, John Moxley and Brody Lee put on a way better match than either of the title matches that happened at Money in the Bank, so. I thought it was kind of shitty that Brody Lee lost by passing out. I think, I think down the road they can make... Out. They're probably going to explain it like that he didn't pass out, that he like he went to another realm or something. I, I don't know. Like, And then also uh, Brian Cage being a number one contender. Uh, he That's a TV loss. I, I don't see that making... Well, actually, it's been announced for Fighter Fest, so it is going to be on a show. But if Fighter Fest is free like it was last year, then I understand. But... I don't see John Moxley losing to Brian Cage, who I thought was EC3 at first because this guy's jacked. He's a massive man. And then uh, what did you think of the TNT belt? Which is not fully done. They made that very clear. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it was awful looking. I mean, I, yeah, it was rough. It was rough. Now, today on Twitter, I saw a lot of people comparing Cody to Triple H since he booked himself basically to win a belt. But it's the mid-card belt. 
Yeah. Does anyone understand the difference? <laughs> um, I just think it's way different than Triple H always putting himself on top of the con- company, uh, on top of the country, on top of the company. Um, I mean, Cody lost that match to MJF or whatever, where now he can't, it was to Jericho. Cody can't challenge via stipulation for the world title. Triple H would never have lost such a stipulation match. Now, eventually, I think Cody will challenge for the world title, but it's not a big deal to win a mid-card belt. I just, I don't see the comparison at all. Yeah, I don't either. It was a good match. Lance Archer looked fine. I don't think, losing doesn't always mean that a guy buried you. It just means you lost. And if you have a good showing, a loss is fine. We've been so trained by the WWE to think that when you lose, it's bad because it usually is bad in the WWE like when when you lose you go way down it seems like in the WWE but that's not how it has to be because that's not how real sports work when a baseball or football team loses a game they don't just automatically drop out of contention they come back the next week and they can they can rebuild wins and losses um, shouldn't be seen as the end of anything they should just be seen as wins and losses. I mean, I just, like I told you last night, I think they are just putting out a better product all the way around. And that's just me. Yeah, you can't watch Money in the Bank and Double or Nothing side by side and then look at me. No matter if you're a WWE mark or an AEW mark or if you really love New Jersey, if you're just... How about I take somebody that's never watched wrestling before? They can't they can't look me in the eye and tell me they preferred Money in the Bank over that. I mean, there's just no way. But also, at the same time, though, AEW has got to drop this $50 price point or whatever. And um, I know that you purchased it, especially now when there are millions and millions of people out of work i just think it's craziness that they are charging people that much for a pay-per-view yeah fifty dollars for a for that is a little bit on the on the steep side however i still think that it will i mean it it, it's a better product so (laughs) you get what you pay for right right so it was your pick this week and uh you made this pick Back in, I think, January, so uh, I'm glad we're finally getting around to it. Uh, But what was your pick for this week, Patrick? Well, my pick was the Battle Royal, the Legends Battle Royal at the Meadowlands from the Hidden Gems section on the WWE Network. Yeah, so this was a... On the WWE Network, this is called The Legendary Battle Royal Ensues at the Meadowlands from November 16th, 1987. From Luthez to Ray Stevens, this battle royal features some of the most legendary names to ever grace the squared circle. So this was a house show they did at the, the field house next to where the Giants and the Jets play football, the big stadium, which is now, I think, MetLife Stadium replaced it. I, I think that's right. And uh, so, this is November of 87, and which is so strange to me because, Patrick, this is a few months removed of WrestleMania 3. <laughs> so, the current wrestling world at this time was Hulk Hogan and 
Macho Man Randy Savage and Steamboat and all these just and also muscle men in general just big big bodied characters and over the top personality cartoon characters so very strange that they would book this on a house show <laughs> and um I tried to look this up to see why this happened. To me, it almost feels like they did this and taped it, which um, I I did find one article that was written about it where the guy says, well, unfortunately, there's no footage of it. Well, there was footage of it, apparently. WWE has this footage. And to me, it seemed like the reason they shot this and the reason they did these interviews afterwards was for some sort of Luthez documentary. And I guess they just never put it together. They just never did it. Yeah, that's kind of what I was... I can't explain it otherwise, why they did this. Because the company was going in such a different direction. I mean, ever since WrestleMania 1, Rock and Wrestling Connections, Cindy Lauper, Celebrities, Mainstream, Hogan's on SNL, it's gone in a completely different direction. And here you are bringing people that wrestled 30, 40 years ago to come do a house show and it's just bizarre to me that they did this it wasn't like this was the main event it wasn't like this was promoted as the main event because the main event was actually a battle royal that jake roberts won so a guy carrying a giant snake was in the main event um and you can tell from the crowd reaction to some of these guys that they had no fucking clue who some of these people were now I'm sure some of the older fans in the crowd did, but this is also, like I said, this is coming off WrestleMania 3, um, and you're getting a lot of new fans to the sport. So there's a lot of kids in the crowd, basically. So if I'm a kid in the crowd, I'd be like, what the fuck is going on? This is insanity. Yes. Um, so I did look up the rest of the card, though. Here's what we didn't get to see on this house show card that they didn't tape. Uh, Ron Bass pinned Jerry Allen. Danny Spivey pinned Ivan Putsky. Don Morocco pinned Hercules. Dino Bravo and Greg Valentine beat JYD and Brutus Beefcake. Billy Jack Haynes pinned Demolition Smash. But then Demolition Axe pinned Ken Patera. Jake Roberts beat Killer Khan via disqualification. The Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, pinned Ricky Steamboat. I guess this is the lead into uh, next year's WrestleMania, so you got to build up uh, DiBiase. And then uh, Randy Savage pinned Harley Race. I guess this was a feud over the, the King gimmick. And then this Battle Royal that we got to see on this show. And then Jake Roberts won a Battle Royal, which I think during this time, a lot of house shows ended in Battle Royals, so... They just if if you're there and you're in the locker room, come out and have a battle royal at the end of the at the end of the night. Now the legends weren't included in that one, I don't think so, because uh, they were all doing interviews backstage apparently. Where the number one question was, "What do you think of Luthes?" <laughs> Which is weird, um, talking to people that had feuds with him and that these are his contemporaries, but also at the same time, your contemporaries are your competitors. So it's weird to say, hey, what do you think of this guy? And nobody else. Like, they didn't ask um, Killer Kowalski, hey, what do you think of Pat O'Connor? They just asked everybody, what do you think of Luthez? 
So, so Patrick, this begins as the participants get introduced one at a time. From the Isle of Malta, it's Baron Mikel Skakluna. How do you say his last name? I had no idea. Yeah, so the first partic- the first participant is Mikel Skakluna, I think is how it's pronounced. He was from Malta. Uh, he died in 2010, aged 80. He was uh, known mainly in Canada before coming to the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, and he was deemed Baron Mikel. Um, he was famous for entering the ring with a blue cape over his shoulders, indicating that he was of Maltese royal descent. He was also known for being a master of the foreign object, mainly a roll of coins to bash opponents out of sight of the referee. So... A literal foreign object. He is a foreigner with an object. So, that is his story. Then we get Sailor Art Thomas. Sailor Art Thomas, who was born in 1935. He was a legit merchant marine. He was mainly a tag team guy. uh, An African American, so... Had probably had terrible, terrible time uh, wrestling uh, in his day. Uh, wrestled throughout the 60s, uh, won some tag team titles, uh, wrestled in Texas, eventually teamed up with Bobo Brazil and Bruno San Martino when he came to the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Debuted in 43, retired in 81, but was mainly known for his run in the 60s, so compared to some of these guys, especially Thez, uh, a short career, defeated Baron Von Rasky for the WWA World Heavyweight Championship, but the title was held up and uh, probably not recognized. So, Sailor Art Thomas, that's who he is. Next is Pedro Morales, who we talked about because he passed away last year. Pedro. A very underrated um, legend that the company seems to have totally forgotten about as far as it's all Bruno, Bruno, Bruno. And um, Pedro gets forgotten about despite being a fellow Hall of Famer and a huge draw at Madison Square Garden. And it's kind of viewed as a, uh, a fill-in champ while Bruno thought he was done with wrestling, basically. You can go back to... I forget which episode we talked about Pedro, but... Um, Passed away at 76 in 2019, so February 12th. So an episode from February of last year, you can hear what we talked about Pedro. So The Flying Frenchman Edward Carpentier is next. Carpentier. Carpentier, excuse me. Yeah, that's some of these guys in this Battle Royal are mainly known more for the, what they did after this as road agents, like Rene... Goulet and um, Tony Gurria and stuff like that. Mm. The original kangaroo Al Costello is out next. Al Costello, actually Italian, not Australian, but he did move to Australia when he was 16 years old. Uh, A lot of these guys, AWA guys, that's what's sort of weird about it too also, in addition to just having all these old guys in the ring. He was born in 1919, so here in 1987, 
He would have been nearly 70 years old. He took the name Al Costello from Al Capone and Frank Costello, so two mobsters. He was uh, part of the Fabulous Kangaroos, which was his stable, uh, with Roy Hefferman, Don Kent, and Bruno Becker, among others. Later in his career, he managed the new Fabulous Kangaroos, which included a little guy named Al Snow. So, Oh. Another famous Al. Nobody's ever going to know this Al Snow guy. No, he's a loser. Yeah. Uh, Gene Kaniski is next. Oh, Gene Kaniski, born November 23rd, 1928. His real name, Eugene Nicholas Kaczynski. January 7th of 1966, he beat Luthez for the World's Heavyweight Championship. He did, yeah, and he, of course, was the referee of the main event of the original Starcade. Ric Flair versus Harley Race. That's right. That's right. He also did some acting. He was in uh, Sylvester Stallone's Paradise Alley and Double Happiness. And he passed away in 2010 at the age of 81. But a uh, very legendary guy. Um, not not doing him justice, but uh, time is of the essence here. <laughs> As uh, I just don't have enough time to go through all his accolades. Gino Brito follows him. I didn't look up Gino. Coco Butt himself is next. Bobo Brazil. Bobo Brazil. His name was Houston Harris. He was born January 10th, 1924. He died January 20th of 1998. Best known for being one of the original men to come up with his finisher, the Coco Butts. Debuted in 1951 and finally retired from wrestling in 1993. Yeah, one of the uh, the first African American wrestlers to really break through to the mainstream, and yeah, did the uh, the headbutt finisher. So, in addition to Islanders having hard heads, uh, I guess he established that uh, African Americans do as well. So, another Hall of Famer. Most of these guys were put in the Hall of Fame in the first class like in 94 so dominic danucci is out next what is his best known thing to wrestling well he trained a guy named mick foley there you go and he's mentioned in uh, some of mick foley's books he also trained shane douglas so for as much good as he did he also trained shane douglas so um okay well i like shane douglas so yeah well He's one of the few people in this battle royal still alive. He's 88 years old. He also trained referee Mark Curtis, so he, um... Wow, now I did not know that. The Crusher is next. Uh-oh, Milwaukee's own. Uh, I'm gonna include a promo I found of The Crusher, because The Crusher is a lot of fun. Uh, the Crusher <laughs> is what I mentioned about uh, how Otis reminded me of a drunk uncle or somebody earlier. The Crusher, that's what his character was. He was a drunk uncle. He would come out with a cigar, and he would tell you that he's just been drinking a bunch of beer, uh, that his training involves carrying uh, kegs of beer, and uh, then he would just beat the shit out of you. And uh, 
had a great gimmick. One of the original beer-drinking wrestlers, I mean, way before Sandman and Stone Cold Steve Austin was doing it, uh, from Milwaukee. Uh, he passed away at 79 in 2005. Uh, the promo I found of him just made, made me love the guy, but he is a very ugly man. He is probably the ugliest man in this battle royal, and that says a lot. Uh, because there's a lot of candidates like I mentioned this is 87 so we're into muscle bound bodybuilding uh, world of professional wrestling these guys have bodies of uh, men men that could kick your ass in 1950 and 1960 dudes that that are hardened a lot of them had been in the military some of them had been in wars and uh, just burly men that could beat the shit out of you way scarier than some bodybuilder who probably will gas out in seconds if they tried to attack you these guys were hardened and uh some of them i'd say most of them when they were in their prime were wrestling people that sometimes didn't know that this was a work and so a lot of them had a lot of shoot fights so um very tough old men grapplers if you will um up next is Nick Bockwinkle which I don't I don't think we need a lot of explanation as to who Nick Bockwinkle is probably the most famous AWA champion I would say really uh the most memorable AWA champion and sorry Vern but uh Nick Bockwinkle your son-in-law was way more entertaining uh, and then turned into the commissioner of WCW and sucked at it. But he was uh, a really good wrestler. Uh, a very, uh, a more classy version of Ric Flair's character. Where very, uh, he tried to be, sound smarter than you. And uh, he's richer and smarter than you. In one of the interviews he talks about in uh, after the uh, the Battle Royal here, he's like, I just retired. He's actually one of the younger guys in here. He's still in his 50s in this battle royal, so he's one of the youngsters. Um, yes. And uh, they said, so you've been out of the game a long time. He's like, no, I just retired like last year. <laughs> and uh, most of these guys were not actually retired as they are wrestlers. They're never really retired. Because, so. I mean, Luthes would go on to have a match in the 90s. So we move on to Pat O'Connor. Oh, Pat O'Connor. Born Patrick John O'Connor. He was the very first AWA champion ever. He was born August 22nd, 1924. He died August 16th, 1990. His debut was in 1950. He retired in 1990 due to death. That'll do it. Was the first ever AWA champion because... Uh, the AWA left the NWA, and Vern said, okay, well, we'll make the NWA champion our champion. But then he never showed up. So, even though he was the first AWA champion, he never defended the belt. So then Vern said, okay, well, it's been 90 days, I'm the champion. So that's one way to get your first title belt. Uh, yes. Ray the Crippler Stevens. Oh, I love Ray Stevens. He was the blonde bomber. He was one of the guys to come off the top rope, which was just stunning in his time, with the bombs away knee drop. A knee drop from the top rope to the throat. He also did the pile driver. Did a lot of work in San Francisco. 
Uh, was mainly a tag team champion when he came to AWA with Nick Bockwinkel. When he ended up in the World Wrestling Federation, he was managed by classy Freddie Blassie. Uh, he got into a minor feud with Jimmy Superfly Snuka. And then did some color commentary with Vince McMahon in 84. But then went back to the AWA and did some work with uh, Larry Zabisco to take down Nick Bockwinkel. And uh, he actually showed up in another review we did at Slambury 94, that that other Legends reunion. That is Ray Stevens. He passed away in 96. At He was just 60 years old when he uh, passed away. A heart attack and a sleep. Then we have Rene Goulet, who is more known for his backstage role as an agent, was mainly a... Uh, a jobber in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, a tag team guy, and then turned into uh, an agent and was with the WWF until 97. So anytime you see people running out to break up a skirmish, he was he was in the crowd. He passed away last year. He actually passed away in May and no one found out about it until December. But uh, that's what happened with Rene Goulet. Chief J. Strongbow, the fake Native American, is next. And uh, he's in bad shape here. He is uh, not wearing any of his uh, Native American get-up. He's in a Hulkamania blue t-shirt and uh, gym shorts. But uh, he did get a good reaction because the crowd knew who he was. So, But then the, then the main event here, why we're all here, Luthez is introduced next. To very little fan reaction. No one seemed to care. And, uh... It might be because they're in New Jersey. I, I'm not sure. Do we really need to go into the background of Luthez? I mean, Luthez... Um, well, let's just do that, shall we? He was Martin Thez. He was born April 24th, 1916. He died April 28th, 2002. He was a 15-times world champion in the 40s and the 50s it was documented that he was on tv more than normal wrestling other shows and other things he was on tv more than the president of the united states he was much more rec much more recognizable than any other tv personality and is sought after as being one of the greatest of all time. That is the legend, Luthez. Yeah, he was the guy that unified all the wrestling belts under the NWA banner. He was uh, a guy that most promoters booked as the champion uh, because he could legit beat the shit out of the other guy if they tried to go into business for themselves and take the belt. So that's why he he was always the champion. He never wrestled collegiately or anything. He was actually a high school dropout. He started wrestling in his teens. He wrestled in seven decades. The, he has a Hall of Fame named after him. I mean, the list goes on and on. Luthez is probably the most recognizable name from the golden age of wrestling to any... I mean... To anybody that you you say, can you name an old-timey wrestler? They would say Luthez. So. His dominance also... 
His dominance also, in a way, led us to the the, the splitting of the promotions because um, that's I mean that's why Vern started the AWA was to because Lou wouldn't job to him and many wrestlers you know wouldn't work with him after a while because he wasn't he was always going to go over and uh, really the fracturing what turned into the territories was because of Luthez. So, in addition to his greatness, he's also... I mean, it was bound to happen anyway, but... The splintering of having one world champion to represent the entire country, the entire world, was really broken because of his dominance. So, if you can't beat him, compete against him, right? So, that's what ended up happening. He hated what wrestling turned into... He did not like the theatrics. He That's why the WWE has pretty much ignored his legacy. Uh, put him in the legacy wing of the Hall of Fame in 2016. Rarely brings him up. I mean, that's uh, Bruno, Bruno, Bruno. If it didn't happen in New York, it didn't happen in, in the WWE's mind. And uh, he would have been more of a fan of mixed martial arts. In fact, he was. He mentioned it. I mean, he didn't pass away until 2002, so he saw the rise of mixed martial arts. That's actually what he probably would have preferred to today's pro wrestling. I mean, he was he was a grappler. He wouldn't be hitting someone with a chair or going through the hell in a cell or any of this other shit. This guy was just going to get in there and grapple you and take you to the mat and just wear your ass down for hours at a time basically uh so um and most of these guys that's that's the style that they came from so uh but luthez is uh definitely rightly or wrongly i mean when you're the top guy you're you're always gonna have uh detractors just like hogan or or Cena or anybody at the top of your industry and he was at the top of his industry for a very long time so is he overrated probably just a little bit but he's still you know his name so that's I think I personally think Luthez is one of the greatest of all time he is in my top 10 Killer Kowalski is next and he gets a good reaction even though Luthez didn't because we're in New Jersey, and it's Killer Kowalski. Thanks a lot for training Triple H. Uh, so, And last but not least, Arnold Scaland, which, uh, much like Rene Goulet, more known for his work as a manager. And, what's that? The Golden Boy, Arnold Scaland. More well known for his non-wrestling capacity in the... WWF from the the 80s I would say than his actual wrestling career manage none other than Bob Backlund and the match begins and this is a lot like other battle royals we've covered where it was before the time when they knew how to do spots in battle royals so it's just people standing around uh, punching each other and there's only one camera so it would zoom in sometimes to like, oh, these two guys. And there's no announcers on this tape. You can hear some people chatting, but it's unclear who they are. And 
So <laughs> it's so difficult to watch as far as keeping up with the action or who gets eliminated or how they got eliminated. So you can't do a play-by-play for it. Uh, but O'Connor had a nice moment, almost almost like a Kofi Kingston moment, where he avoids getting dumped out by grabbing the ropes and the guys carry him around the ropes and he holds on. So I thought that was kind of cool. And then the ring thins out a bit and the fans can actually see what's going on and actually get into this as most of the guys got eliminated pretty quickly. One of the guys tries to skin the cat. I don't remember which wrestler this was. He eliminates a guy over the top by trying to skin the cat, but then it's so sad, Patrick, because he's so old that he can't get back over the top rope, and he just has to roll under the bottom rope. So, not exactly Shawn Michaels here in his prime. It comes down to the final two. It's Lou Thez and O'Connor. Thez, 71, and O'Connor, 63. By the way... This had to be the oldest combined age of a battle royal in history. I don't think it's ever been this close. For anyone that complains about, oh, The Undertaker, Kane, Triple H, and Shawn Michaels, that was like 200 years of of wrestling there. This was like a thousand years of wrestling in one ring. It's insane how how old these guys were. So, Luthez at 71 um, takes on O'Connor, who's 63, and now they do rest holds, somatics changes. Then Thez ducks O'Connor and back body drops him to the outside and wins the match. So, Patrick, what did you think of this battle royal? I enjoyed the hell out of it. I love the finish. The finish between Pat O'Connor and Lou Thez, uh, that was quite possibly the... Just the whole, just down to those two men and to watch what the 40s, the 30s, 40s, and 50s was all about in color for that split second, uh, for that two minutes or however long it was, was everything that I think culminates a great golden age of wrestling, uh, trip down memory lane I guess is the way to put it so yeah I enjoyed it very much yeah the ending was actually pretty cool um it should have just been a singles match between O'Connor and Thez honestly um glad all these other guys got a payday I think it was cool I think it was also really weird though like I said because there were only like four or five thousand people in the crowd so it's not like and it wasn't promoted, you know. It was. It wasn't for TV. It wasn't like that WCW event, that Slamboree we watched, where it was built on this, and it was televised. So it was just kind of weird to me. And it felt like they were doing this for a documentary, and I'll get into why I think that in in a, in a second. But O'Connor then uh, comes into the ring, and of course they. They do the code of honor, Patrick. They shake hands. And then they pose for some pictures. They were very happy to be wrestling in 1987. So so this match only took about 15 minutes of this video on the network. So then we go to some interviews. And very strange interviews because 
we never know who's the interviewer. I, it kind of sounded like Bill Apter, but I'm, I'm not sure who was actually asking the questions. And why I think this was for a Luthez documentary, it's the one question that gets asked to everybody is, what do you think of Luthez? How great is Luthez? Uh, th- there's basically two questions for everybody. How great is Luthez? And then what do you think about guys today? Those are the two questions. Uh, the first guy is Skakluna. Skakluna. And they ask him, who are you impressed with today? He says Hogan, which no one else would say, by the way. He was the only guy that put Hogan over. Freddie Blassie is next, and he is going to do this interview in character. He is not... He is... You talked about Thez and all these other guys, uh, kayfabe keepers. Uh, Freddie Blassie here, even in a backstage interview, was not going to break character. He was, or Dr. D. Uh, this Freddie Blassie was going to give this in total character. I mean, he cuts a promo to the camera. Uh, Freddie Blassie, even at his advanced age in 1987, was still <laughs> thinking about matches. And still challenging people. They ask him, hey, what have you been up to? He says he's a spokesman for the WWF. He does TV interviews. They say, how's the business changed? He says, oh, they got people jumping off the top rope. And, uh, you know, when I was a wrestler, it was more grappling and stuff. Then they say, hey, Freddie, would you fit in in today's uh, wrestling world? And he says, well, of course I would. Uh, I would just cheat because I'm smarter than everybody. And he says uh, the the ref is just the fifth ring post, and he's useless, and he just go behind his back. And then they ask him about Luthez, and he says, "You know what? I'm better than Luthez." So Freddie Blassie, not breaking character, awesome. Uh, Freddie Blassie is the man. Like, I wish it was just sixty minutes of Freddie Blassie just doing an interview. Yes, absolutely. In fact, he cuts a promo on Thez and, and then mentions that he had eight divorces. Well, Blassie had eight divorces. Uh, Thez only had three, I think. Gene Kaniski is next. He says he only feels good in the ring. It's the only place he feels good. He likes making money this way, beating the shit out of people. They ask him if wrestling is better now. He says... Well, it's all about how much money you make, and at the end of the day, who cares about the quality? Good. Which is a which is a mother-in-law's backhanded compliment. Oh yeah, y'all make more money, but the quality is shit. Kaniski thanks Thez for helping him train his kids. Then we get Nick Bockwinkle. He puts the older guys over, including Thez. He says he wrestled him at fifteen. He was only fifty-three here, so he was a youngster, like I mentioned. He also mentions the top rope. This was a big deal to all the guys. The guys come off the top rope now. They're insane. But he also mentions, and this is something that would ring true because, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, uh, a lot of these guys, uh, we can't have something like this today because most of the guys from 30 or 40 years ago are dead. So we can't have this in today's world. Um but he says, these guys, yeah, they're, they're daredevils, but they're getting broken down faster. So, Nick Bockwinkle with a word of warning. Thez is next, and this is a post-match interview. 
And boy, he looks every bit of 71 with his old man glasses here with the, the rim in the middle. Oh my goodness. Uh, grandpa here. He looks he looks almost like my maternal grandfather here uh, who died around the same age as, as Luthez was here. Like, just old man. He just reflects on his career. He'd love to do it all over again. He was glad to wrestle. He hasn't wrestled in three years. Then we go to Chief J Strongbow. He doesn't say much, really. He just kind of babbles. In fact, the closed captioning can't pick up some of what he said, as I recall. Then we go back to Thez. This is a pre-match interview, and he just says, uh, you know what? Old people can wrestle. Carpentier is next, and he puts Thez over, too. Uh, the, the whole segment is just everyone putting Thez over. He says, you know, uh, today's wrestling, it's like rock and roll music. It's rock and roll music, and it's rock and roll wrestling. Then Killer Kowalski is next, and he says he's just glad to be a vegetarian. <laughs> so, um, he says he's worried about the toll of travel on wrestlers, so another guy with a word of warning. Uh, I wish guys in 1987 had listened to some of these guys, and they would still be alive today. Uh, he's uh, worried about that, and he makes sure today to say that you know the wrestlers today are, are big. These are big guys. So uh, maybe a wink, wink, don't use so much steroids, guys. He also says professionals don't scrap in the hallway or in the alleyway. So uh, all you guys getting into bar fights, uh, don't do that. He says there's not much wrestling in wrestling anymore. More top rope stuff. And then people getting hit with a chair. They like the hype. But guess what? Drawing money is all that matters. So another guy that's realistic. Hey. Whatever makes money, pal. He puts over Luthez, too, and says he helped him uh, learn how to wrestle. Then the next guy, Pat O'Connor, he talks about training a Japanese wrestler. That's what he's been up to. He's upset that the guys don't know basic fundamentals in today's wrestling. Then he puts over Thez. He says he spent over ten hours in the ring with Thez. And then finally we end with Al Costello, who says he is appreciative to have been there and he's appreciative to have gotten to work at Madison Square Garden so I wish these interviews had been a little more in depth uh, I wish that they had asked them some more <laughs> questions and uh, or maybe had them in a round table that would have been cool but it is what it is uh, what did you think of this interview segment it was good. I think, like you said, the first thing that popped in my mind was it was a uh, like a a group together work for a build up of like a a Luthez VHS at the time uh, or something along those lines, like a documentary about him and it just never happened and then thez you know not liking the product definitely they scrapped it all together but that's what it seemed like this was all about was just bow down to luthez everybody like luthez has a book like it's called hooker because that's what those wrestlers or that's what he was Grapplers used to be called hookers, so Luthez has a book, so you can learn a lot more about Luthez by reading a book than watching this. Uh, it was really weird to see these guys in 87, just like I mentioned to you. Uh, unfortunately, 
in 2020, if we took guys that wrestled 30 or 40 years ago, we wouldn't have anybody. You couldn't do this. And what I was also telling you is, yeah, their style was boring for its for what I grew up with. I wouldn't personally like to see two guys just grapple and roll around in the ring. But they came along when there wasn't satellite dishes and when local TV stations had tons of time to fill. People would watch that shit and they were fine with it. But then as entertainment increased and as other forms of entertainment took it to another level, you had Evil Knievel jumping over the Grand Canyon and all this other shit. Wrestling had to evolve as well. And uh, unfortunately, though, that's it cost a lot of wrestlers and just the 80s in general, just cocaine and uh, just it cost a lot of wrestlers their lives is the change in style from going to grapplers. Most of these guys, uh, with the exception of a couple, I mean, two of them are still alive to this day, but then the rest of them lived to their 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, wrestlers from the 80s, you can go up and down a WCW or WWF card from the the late 80s, and you're going to see guys that didn't make it to their 50s or their 60s. So, yeah. um, in a way... And like we've talked about with like Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes before, it's not always about being great in ring perform. It's it's just about crowd reaction and and doing doing what it takes to get to get paid and, and make people happy. And for their era, they they did that and um, they lived long lives afterwards. And uh, so it's kind of sad that. I think wrestling has... I think pro wrestling has gotten better in the past few years about safety and everything, but we still have a long way to go uh, to see where... Hopefully, in 20 or 30 years from now, we'll be able to have Legends Battle Royals like this, because currently we're not. And um, that's what it really made me think of. So that's really my final thoughts on, on this. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, I I think it was a very good piece. I have got a ton of extra uh, historical archive stuff that I would love to discuss at another point in time. You are always doing your own little, uh, on your own uh, fill-ins. I would like to try one with me, and uh, just just one, just one, to teach young kids the history of wrestling, and so I definitely would like to do that, uh, or if you wanted to be a part of it, either one, uh, because like I said, I took this time frame to even learn more historical purposes of wrestling than what I knew to begin with. And I knew quite a bit, and so uh, it was very entertaining. And like I said, I have almost a whole book of archive stuff that I have I've dug up, I've wrote down, and I'm looking forward to it. And I, like I said, I enjoyed this extremely much. Uh, and like I said, I enjoyed this extremely well, and I very, very, very highly recommend going and watching this when we actually started recording i didn't actually go and 
I, I didn't make good notes about these guys, but I did a lot of reading about them, and yeah, it, it's interesting stuff. But unfortunately, the we just had we had a lot to get to, and I've got a limited window to get there today. But uh, we can continue this. Uh, fortunately for us, there's plenty of time to discuss dead wrestlers. So dead wrestling legends, uh, we yeah. we have plenty of plenty of time to to get to those. One final thought, I guess, even though I've already had my final thought. <laughs> the uh, Once again, it's a reminder of how WWE has kind of just disregarded the past and not done a good job of spotlighting these guys. Because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when we talked about Owen and stuff, Vince McMahon, uh, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, uh, for better or worse, owns wrestling. And you you can say, oh, well, there's other competition, there's this and that. But he has the biggest tape library. He has all the the access to all this, this archived footage. He could put together a million documentaries on these guys individually. And with his world-class production team. Uh, and, and really spotlight them. But he doesn't. And that's kind of disappointing. So... It was nice that in 1987, coming off the heels of his biggest moment uh, in Pontiac Silverdome, uh, that he decided to have these guys in for a house show. Uh, but could have done a lot more, and still can do a lot more. And we gave Dark Side of the Ring all this positive you know, praise. They do an excellent job with all these sad tales. Why not spotlight some of these guys? And if some of these guys did some fucked up stuff in their life, I'd like to hear about that, too. I mean, I, I don't know if they were, like, bootleggers or whatever they were doing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's a little before their time. But, uh, yeah, I, I just I think there could be more done. So, well, uh, it's my pick now for our next show. And since we're coming off the heels of some cinematic pre-recorded matches, I decided... It's time to break out to dust off uh, one of the best that was ever done. And I'm talking, of course, about the Sumo Monster Truck match at Halloween Havoc 1995. Uh, yes! The Giant and Hulk Hogan. And uh, because WCW was doing this way before WWE got into the game as far as cinematic, pre-recorded matches. We've already done King of the Road with uh, Dustin Rhodes, who was on Double or Nothing the other night, which is crazy. At this rate, Dustin Rhodes might be at the Legends Battle Royal in 20 years. But uh, WCW was doing this shit all the time. Uh, they, they, The one thing about WCW, they never, they never were hesitant to take a chance on a crazy idea. And uh, sumo monster trucks on the top of Kobo Hall... Where at the Money in the Bank 2020, we had Rey Mysterio and Al Black get thrown off a roof. Will Hulk Hogan or the Giant fall off the roof of Kobo Hall? We'll have to find out together. Or maybe it happened in 1995 and you can find it before then. But that's what I'd like to do is Halloween Havoc 95 for our next review. That'll work. I'm looking forward to it. All right, that'll do it for this week. Go to powerslam.tv, use the promo code RETROWRESTLING, get a month for free and get access to hours and hours and hours and hours of wrestling. You can't get enough wrestling. And if you're home, if you're unemployed, well, that's a free month of hours of something to watch. 
or if you're home and you just don't want to go out, that's something to do. And as always, you can go to RetroWrestlingPodcast.com. Patrick, where can they find you on social media? I am Patrick Young on Facebook. I am Patrick Referee Patrick or at Referee Ref Patrick. I don't know what we set it up as. <laughs> I think you you're Ref Patrick Young. Alright, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. And you can always get in touch with me over Messenger through Facebook. I am always talking to people on there. So definitely reach out to me there. That's the quickest and easiest way. If you have a question, if you have something you're curious about, if you have something that you're wanting to know, if you are just wanting to talk, if you're a wrestling historian yourself, whatever, whenever, I am available, and I will make sure. If I don't know the answer, I will find out. All right, well, that'll do it for this week. Oh, and by the way, so in my real life, I was uh, I was part of an afternoon radio show for 10 years, and... Since 2014, I, I would sign off on my inventions. Uh, I had an invention segment where I'd come up with a really bad idea for an invention, or I had a, a weekend review freestyle rap. You can learn more about that by going to bradandinternalex.com. That was my radio job. Now, and one of the things that I used to say all the time, and, and what I sign off with this podcast with, and have done since 2017 is I usually say the word bingo bango. And that came about from a story that my co-host told me a long time ago in 2014. It turns out there's a new show on Hulu uh, from the guys of Rick and Morty. I think it's called Solar Opposites. And the very first episode, Patrick, I shit you not, there's a character that they bring in and he says bingo bango and that's his catchphrase. And then the other characters love his catchphrase, Bingo Bango. And they make him say it over and over again. And it was just the most bizarre feeling. Because I was like, they fucking stole that from me. They did. <laughs> and yes. so now, every time I say it in this podcast, I'm going to feel stupid. Because someone's going to say, oh, he just got that from Solar Opposites. But I swear, you can go in the archives. I've said it for a long time. Um, you see, you should have. Yeah, should have got that trademarked. Just like I did, because I am the one and only, the greatest referee in professional wrestling history, Patrick Young. Saying, as always, my closing lines of closing. And bingo, bango.